grab some nibblies. Snacks have been beautiful. All right. So I'll pray for Nate. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with Nate as part of our body. And Kate, too. But thank you right now for Nate. Thank you for the gifts that you've given him, the gifts of teaching and wisdom. And I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would come on him and that he would just know what's on your heart to share with us this morning and that you give him a clear mind uh, to do that. Amen. Check, check. Hello, hello. 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 Yes, welcome here. Sunday, Sunday. Um, my name is Nathan, and I have the privilege to speak to you today on the topic that you see on the screen. Um, but before I begin, I, got, I need to say a couple things. The scripture in the bulletin is not the scripture I'm using today. That's totally my fault. I didn't get the scripture to Christine that I was using because I wasn't certain which ones uh, because I was going to use a, a number of different ones. So it is not based on Mark 6. So just mention that. No, that's on me. That's on me. That's on me. Um, also, uh, my talk is heavily indebted to a number of people. I'll mention Stephen Garber, John Van Slotten, Tom Nelson, whose book is this book. This is the cover photo uh, of his book. Uh, Ian Proven, Dorothy Sayers, and there's other, many others that, uh, uh, whose broad shoulders I stand on. So I just wanted to mention that. Um, and the back of your bulletin, on the very back page, at the bottom, there's a, a couple books there and a link to a video series that I'll mention a little later, too. So my topic today is connecting Sunday to Monday, a conversation uh, about work and faith. But I need to say that the topic title is a little misleading. It's not going to be so much a conversation, which really is a two-way thing. It's more of a monologue today. Uh, and then hopefully, though, that this will plant some seeds for a conversation, a two-way dialogue later on. Um, and these are seeds of ideas I offer to you today. They're, uh, they're still forming in my own mental garden, if I can use that metaphor if that works. Anyways... Um, and they uh, are things I'm still processing, I'm asking myself, what do I think about this? So, with that aside, uh, I will begin by telling you something about myself that I really do not like. 80s music. Um, I don't know if it was the, the hair of the music scene or the overuse of synthesizers or the saxophone solos. Uh, apologies to those who really do have a, a near and dear place in their heart for 80s music. And I'll mention there will be prayer at the front for you after the service. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> yeah, pray for me. Thank you. Yeah, pray for me. Yes. Um, but there was one song uh, that was particularly uh, uh, distasteful to me, I think, because I found it depressing. I was fr from the band Loverboy. 
and it was called Working for the Weekends. If somebody, if you know that, everybody's working for the weekend, you know, he's kind of a catchy tune. But this line, everybody's working for the weekend, hit me uh, as a very depressing thing to say. Because to me, it meant, uh, it spoke of work that needed to be escaped from. Uh, that was torturous, that if you could just get to Friday afternoon, the weekend awaited, and that was freedom, 48 hours of being free. So if you break down your week, you got one week, you have seven days, 168 hours, two days of freedom, 48 hours, five days of being in captivity, though, 120 hours, 70% of your week being chained to what you're doing, trying to get through a manic Monday, another I think, 80, I think it was in the 80s, wasn't it? No, there's a, a terrible Tuesday. I don't think that was a song, but maybe it was. I don't know. Uh, getting through Wednesday or hump day, getting over the hump of the week. It's like, oh my goodness, thank goodness, we can see the weekend on the horizon, you know. And then if, if this has ever happened to you, it happens to me a lot, when you're on Thursday and you think it's Friday, and you think it's Friday until about 2 o'clock, and then you realize, oh wait, I have another day yet to work. Um, and then on and on and on uh, as it goes, months and months and years and years of this mentality. And this is what this line meant to me. Um, perhaps not to everyone, I, I realize that, but that's what it meant to me. And I, as I was uh, preparing for this talk today, I was thinking about why this song, this line affected me as it did. And I think it did because for a good period of my life, I was wrapped up in work that I didn't enjoy, that I found very monotonous, uh, disinteresting, tiring, long hours, little pay. I, I was listless. I was dragging myself to the workspace when I was at work, then back to the break room, and then back to the workspace, and then back to the break room, and then again, week after week after week after week after and on and on and on. And so this was my mentality. And I think uh, I disliked this song because it spoke a little too closely to my situation. And I think, if, uh, I think to others around me as well, and perhaps some of you can relate uh, to this. I was working for the weekend too, but I didn't want to admit it. I wanted to be engaged more with what I was doing, but it seemed impossible to be uh, more engaged. So it would be safe to say that I had a negative view of work. <laughs> it would be safe to say that I didn't see any bigger connection with what I was doing than it was something that I had to do to pay bills. That was it. And it would be safe to say that if I continued thinking that, I would have had a, uh, it would have led to a pretty unhappy life. So... I've started to bounce from job to job. I tried to find the right fit, the right purpose, the right fulfillment, maybe even a rubber stamp from God saying, this is it, this is what you're to do. But the problem was I didn't need a new job, though that can be the case. In my situation, it wasn't. Uh, what I needed, though I didn't note it, was a different way of thinking about the work I was doing. I needed to see how my Sunday faith connected more into my Monday work. I needed to see that my work 
matter to God as much as maybe a work a pastor might do or a missionary might do. I need to see there was aspects of kingdom purposes in the work I was doing. So you might think now about your job and, and ask yourself, well, what does my job have to do with my faith? I mean, it's not like I'm doing something obviously for God here. I'm just teaching grade three. Or, or maybe you're thinking, well, well, some jobs, it's just more obvious that it's Christian work, right? I mean, if you work for a Christian nonprofit, I mean, if you work for Salvation Army, it's salvation's in the title of the job. I mean, that's obviously God's work. Or you could say, well, I'm in business. I'm a businessman. I make money, and then I give it to people who are doing God's work. I mean, I, sometimes I get a little bit tired of all the asks that come to my way. I kind of feel a little bit like an ATM. But, you know, they're doing God's work, and I guess this is my role. Yeah. You know, God bless people that do make money. do spread it out, for sure. Um, but let me be clear that uh, people that are pastors, that are missionaries, that work in Christian nonprofits, do great work. They do vital work. A lot of my role in vocational life has been in Christian nonprofits. And let me also be clear that work is work regardless if it's, if it's paid or not. Some of the hardest workers get little to no compensation for their efforts. But is the work that I mentioned, uh, if you're a pastor, a Christian nonprofit, work for a Christian nonprofit, work as a missionary, is that the only kind of work you could do and call it Christian work? What is Christian work? And how can we start to connect our Sunday to our Monday? So, uh, again, planting some seeds. And to start to do that, I'd like to first go back to the beginning of everything. Go back to Genesis, to the beginning of Genesis, to the story that we as humans, all of us, were born into. Because I think understanding our origins here will help us to understand this topic a little better. So Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In creating that, he created light, separated light from darkness, sky from water, water from land, created seed-bearing plants and trees. He made two great lights, the sun, the moon. He made sea creatures and birds, then land creatures, everything that moves on the land. And then we come on the scene. Then God said, let us make mankind, humans, in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then God said to humans, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So in these verses, we see a creator creating things and then putting his specific image into humans and put humans in the middle of everything that he created to take care of it, to manage it, to prune it, to be caretakers of it. Now, remember, this is a world that 
existed before sin entered in. That's in chapter 3. Before that fateful bite of the apple. And what is interesting to think about, that in this perfect world, without sin, there was something to do in it for people. There was work to be done. Earth pre-sin was not simply a place where people, uh, humans, hung around eating grapes. Well, God did everything. I mean, there might have been some eating of grapes. I like grapes, sure. Who doesn't like grapes? But there was still uh, some responsibility given to us with creation. And as that plays out, the ruling of creation, the subduing of creation, we could talk about how well or how badly humans have done this. I mean, I think we could all list some good ways that we've managed creation well and some very not good ways, very bad ways that we've done it. But that's not the point here, I think. The point here is that God created a good creation, a wild world that humans needed to be in to kind of work it, to be rulers over it. So from the very beginning, it seems that work was made part of the fabric of the way things were. Psalm 8 echoes this. It says, you made them, humans, rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds uh, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all that swims the paths of the seas. And as scripture continues on from Genesis, uh, we see hints of human beings designed to do specific things in the world, given specific gifts for different tasks. And we've talked about two of them. We've talked about uh, Bezalel and Oholiab. I think I've been practicing those two days. (laughs) I think Joanna, you spoke on them. I think it was... Yes, yes. Um, I believe we talked about them earlier this year. Uh, I'm going to call them Bez and O for short. Forgive me. Um, But in Exodus 31, it says that Bez was filled with wisdom and with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills from God to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. And O was there to help him. So they were chosen by God to uh, essentially quarterback the aesthetics of the tabernacle that God was creating. And God, or sorry, God was instructing Moses in uh, and getting the Israelites to build a place where God would, uh, would come down and rest as the Israelites traveled through the desert wilderness for 40 years. And so these two people were chosen, and especially uh, the listing for Bez here was all these gifts that God had given him for this task. Um, and I think what was interesting here is, in Exodus, it's, you can see God cares about the beauty of things. He cares about the way things look. Um, you could say that God cares about the artist, the craftsman, that Bez was, but he also cares about the art that he is creating. Um, you could also say that, you know, it's fast forwarding um, uh, thousands of years, that God cares about lawyers. He also cares about law. Um, this is a point that uh, is uh, in the Reframe series that I will show you a clip of, uh, 
It's a video series that Regent College put out about work and faith. And that's a point they've made about God caring for the artist, but also caring about art. God caring about lawyers, but also caring about law. And so here, again, God cares for Bez, but he also cares about the way that the tabernacle will look and gave Bez these specific gifts. But how does this look like in our everyday work? Um, John Van Slotten uh, argues, um, he, he has a book in your bulletin. His book is called, um, I forget what it's called actually, but it's in your bulletin. Every job is a parable. Thank you. Every job is a parable. Uh, and he uh, lists uh, specific jobs in his book and he talks about them. And he, he says this, whether a baker or a biochemist, all jobs have God's fingerprints in them if we take the time to give the work thoughtful consideration. He also says this, far too often people journey through their vocational lives with no expectation of ever meeting God there. For one reason or another, they have lost sight of God's everywhere presence. Some think their jobs are too insignificant, ordinary, in the middle of nowhere. Others think that what, they're, what they do couldn't possibly connect to the ways of God and that there's nothing of God's goodness in their jobs. Some have never even considered or imagined connecting with God at work. Work is work. God is at church. Perhaps you can resonate with this quote. Um, I definitely could at points in my life. So in his book, he talks about various jobs and kind of teases out how God might be present in them. Let's meet Shirley, a Walmart greeter. She says, I like people. I want to help them find the department they are looking for, help them have a better day by smiling or just saying hello or by getting them a shopping cart. She loves serving people, welcoming people, being hospitable. This gift of serving she has, Slotin says, mimics a God who serves and who came to serve us, who washes his disciples' feet. Sam Colius, a residential landlord, says this, I was raised in an environment where you, when, where you help your neighbor and you treat them like you want to be treated. That's our number one rule as a company. And it's interesting, usually a company's number one rule, a lot of companies is profits, and businesses need to be profitable. A lot of people have that as the end goal. But here, it's a little different. His rule is to treat people well, providing not just a house, but a home and a sense of belonging and community. Doing work in this way honors God by creating a community, helping people to belong to a community, and to be connected uh, ultimately to him. That echoes that uh, quality of the Christian life. Ralph, an accountant, says this. People who know they are going to be audited tend to be more honest. As an accountant, I'm an acting as an agent of truth. Hmm, is there any accountants here? I don't know if uh, anyone is, but yes, you're an agent of truth. Truth in financial reporting. Although I'm looking for fraud and auditing and for financial dishonesty, all my clients expect me to present their organizations correctly and honestly. They want their financials to be correct and true. They strive for truth. 
I think we can resonate with this. We want errors to be found and fixed, for everything to be reconciled in the end. And we want and we have a God who will expose error, exposes deception, and who has reconciled all things to himself and has brought shalom, peace and harmony, completeness, wholeness to the world. We see glimpses of it now, but at the end of all things, it will be complete. One more job I'd like to talk about right now, sanitation workers, garbage workers, people that pick up the garbage off of our streets once a week in front of your house. There's an uh, author by the name of Robin Nagel. She wrote a book called Picking Up, Picking Up the Garbage, Picking Up. She writes about the New York Sanitation Department, about sanitation workers and how they become invisible when they put on their uniforms. I don't think, yeah, I don't have that here. I'll just read it. She says this, the general public tends to look down on their work, uh, the work that they do as dirty, mindless, and somehow less. Yet what they do is critical for the health and the well-being of our lives, our homes, our cities, and our world, helping to prevent waste-borne diseases from plaguing our cities. If you went back 150 years to any major urban center, I would say to any major western urban center, and take a breath, the disgusting smells emanating from the open dumps and sewers would have been overwhelming. And yet these people who keep our city clean go largely unnoticed. Now, I never thought, I mean, when I read that, I never I thought about that work that way. So these workers who are image bearers of God, as all humans are, they image a God who cleans and maintains his creation, and he cleans up our own lives through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, in the same way, his presence, God's presence, is largely invisible to us a lot of the time. So I want to take a moment here and ask you this. How might your work mirror aspect of who God is and how he acts. How might you be able to bring shalom into your work, a sense of peace and wholeness? I'll give you a moment just to reflect on that and then we'll continue. Obviously, it's, uh, it's a question that takes longer than the few moments that we have today to reflect on. So I leave those two questions with you to take with you as you uh, go through your day. Um, I'd like to talk to you about a woman by the name of Dorothy Sayers now. 
Dorothy Sayers was an English crime writer, and she was a poet. She lived from 1893 to 1957. She's best known for her mystery novels, uh, but she's also, she also wrote plays, uh, literary criticism, and she wrote a few essays as well. And there's one essay uh, called Why Work that I'd like to talk to you about here as we wind down our, uh, my talk today. Uh, and in this essay, it's 1940s wartime Britain that she's addressing. She's talking about the meaning of work, of Christian work. Okay, and in uh, this time period, the people of Britain are feeling uh, want. They're, they don't have a lot. Things are scarce compared to pre, uh, pre-war, where the industrial machine in Britain was cranking at full steam. They were cranking out goods, uh, and the goods they were cranking out were for the sole purpose of maximizing how much you could get. It wasn't. They weren't so concerned about how good this chair was built. It's just how many can we make and how cheaply can we make them and how much can we make off of them. So this was this mentality and uh, the mentality society for purchasing was like, well, I can just buy this today and I mean, it's obviously cheaply made so I can dispose it tomorrow and not really think of anything and buy the next day. Oh, get this too, own oh, that, oh, this hat, wow. You know, and that kind of thing. That was the mentality, just quickly buy, quickly dispose of. And really, uh, keep in mind kind of our present day mentality as well as we go, you know, it's kind of an interesting thing. She's speaking into uh, 1940s wartime Britain, but how does it speak to us today? Anyways, um, so as I go through, I I will mention that I'm taking bits and pieces of her essay and I've slightly modified some of her words, uh, not changed the essence of what she's saying, but just to make it clear what she's saying, so. She starts off saying, we should ask of a business or an enterprise or business idea, not will it pay, but is it good? Of goods, things that are made, we should ask not can we get people to buy them, but are they useful things well made? Now, this may sound idealistic, maybe unrealistic to the business mind, but she continues on. She doesn't give up. She says, at present, we have no clear grasp of the principle that everyone should do the work for which they are fitted to. Think of Bez and Exodus, fitted as a craftsman. The employer is obsessed with the notion of finding cheap labor and the worker by the notion that the best paid job is the job to take. Only rarely do we ever attempt to tackle a problem from the other end and inquire what type of worker is suited to this type of work. Now, Sayers does admit in the essay that economic realities in specific situations can frustrate this process, can push this question out of the way of trying to fit worker to the work. But she continues on. She wants to sketch a a new vision. And she says, well, we should hurry to be engaged in work that is worth doing and in which we can take pride in. Because the greatest insult that this industrial machine, this industrial age, has offered the worker is that it has robbed the worker of all interest in what they are making and forces them to a life dedicated to making things badly that were not worth making in the first place. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Pretty scathing stuff against the work mentality of the time. But you could think in this 
Industrial Revolution was just really at its peak. Uh, and you can think of workers on a production line, and they might have a piece of something that's going to be finished way down there, and they're just, whatever they're doing, sorting or whatever, and they're totally disconnected from the end product. Um, this is kind of what she is speaking into by saying this. Interestingly, she considers Jesus growing up. And as you know, Joseph was a carpenter. He probably worked as a carpenter himself. All the, and, and she considers all the work and care that Jesus put into the things that he built and says this. I don't, I don't have it here. She says, no crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever, I dare swear, came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, she also speaks against the idea that some work is better than other work in God's eyes. She talks about the church being culpable in this separation of work that is holy, that God approves, and work that is ordinary. She says this, the church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually only to tell the person not to be drunk and disorderly in their free time and then to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be saying is this, that the very first demand that their religion makes upon them is that they should make good tables. Very interesting. Now maybe we've switched uh, and, uh, and switched our view as a church uh, from this, uh, where Sunday is uh, where I just show up and then the rest of the week uh, I, uh, I do what I want, I can do my job as I want. But I think this really has something to say to us today. She, uh, uh, one more quote I'd like to share with you at this point. She says, as Jacques Maritain says, if you want to produce Christian work, be a Christian and try to make a work of beauty into what you, in which you put your heart. Right? I think that's really, really insightful. Um, I think she's a radical uh, regarding this thing of work. And this is 1940s Britain. I think this does speak to us today. And again, it's not saying that the work that pastors or missionaries or other people that are employed with Christian nonprofits or organizations is not important or not relevant. Of course it is. But she's trying to recast a vision for all work, that all work can bring beauty and shalom in the world. And that is important. And all work can play a part of God's story and, that, uh, and play a part of making God's world a better place. So at this time, I'd like to uh, play a short clip of a video series. So Sherry, if you could start to cue that up, that'd be great. It's called Reframe, as I, I mentioned to you. It talks about these questions, work and faith. It's put out by Regent College and in, co in cooperation with the Washington Institute for Faith, Vocation, and Culture. There's 10 episodes, and we're going to look at episode three here, just a short, almost not quite two minute preview of episode three. It's called Creation and Fall, and it talks a little bit, or it hits on what uh, I've spoken about today. So, Sherry, go ahead, thank you. I would walk around the stones, the rocks up there, and pray. What is it that God wants me to do with who I am, with the tools I have, with how he made 
made me to be. There's gotta be a reason why I'm here. What is it? In our culture, we have developed a sacred-secular split. We've developed a hierarchy, so church is better than workplace. And I would say God is in the church and he's in business too. He's in both places, and we need to understand that. And so although the world is certainly not divine in this story, it is sacred like a temple. The fall does not negate the goodness of creation. What we have in the world is this mix of still good. You'll see glimpses of the good everywhere. But you'll also see frustration of the good in the midst of the world. And we are called to imitate God in his own creativity, in his own ruling over the cosmos, in his own providential care for other creatures. I think what happens is once, once we push back that, that sacred secular divide, it opens up the opportunity for asking a really practical question, which is, how does my work relate to God's work in the world? We're meant to act. We're meant to create. We're culture makers. Through that understanding, through our art, through our science, through our technology, through what we make, we can take creation and not diminish it, but, but uh, appreciate it, give, us, give it a voice, lift it back up to God. So again, um, the link is in your bulletin there. Um, there are uh, various previews you can also uh, other of other uh, sessions that you can uh, take a look at, and if you also like to talk to me about it a little bit, that'd be great. So, so um, I'll finish with one more uh, quote from Sears. She says this: "If we really believe the idea, and the idea being uh, doing work that is worth doing." that we have a responsibility for and a connection to and arranged our work and our standard of values accordingly, we should no longer think of work as something we hurried to get through in order to enjoy our time off. We would no longer be working for the weekend. We would rather look at our time off as the period of changed rhythm that refreshed us for the delightful purpose of getting on with our work on Monday. Wow, that sounds like a greater connection between Sunday and Monday to me. A more, more seamless life where we can see elements of the sacred in our ordinary work. And perhaps we could call doing things well in our work as Christians a sacred practice, using the gifts we have as best we can in the work we do, again, whether it's paid or not. Now, these ideas I've presented today, again, uh, they're in process with me. I'm still kind of thinking about them and um, being kind of recalibrated by them. It's not been a lightning fast turnaround for me. I've been more kind of like the tanker in the harbor that the tugboats kind of slowly push in the other direction. You know, that's kind of how it's been. Um, can we ever escape times when work is monotonous and frustrating and tired? I don't know. But I think having a more 
positive long-term overall vision and view of work that there's hope and good and God in good work that we do and all good work that we do helps us who are constantly working for the weekend to enjoy the weekend more helps us to have who have little to no faith connection uh, with our work to see those connections more clearly anyway I know these ideas have helped me and hopefully they will help you also take back your weekend if it needs taking back. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your fingerprints in our work. For those that need a revisioning of how they see their work, may what has been said today be a beginning of a, beginning of a slow turning in them toward a more positive and more godly outlook beyond simply working for the weekend. Thank you, Father, that you do care about what we do, that you've given us gifts. You created a good world. You created us as creative people. Thank you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Nate. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace today and always. If you'd like prayer, either in response to the message or for Monday to Friday, the rest of life, please uh, come or turn to a friend next to you. And um, yeah, Joanna would like to share something with us. Is it okay? Look, I thought we had time. Okay, great, thanks. Um, so it's kind of interesting. I don't want to. Oh, this is going to totally sound like a cheesy pun when I tell you what it is, but I don't want to put a whole bunch of stuff on it that isn't what it is. But this morning, I was reminded um, during Lynn, when she was leading in worship, there was a song where there was a line about uh, bones. And I suddenly thought, oh, yeah, I, um, I have a friend who's in India who I've mentioned a few times to you guys in various ways. And um, two Sundays ago when I was teaching... He, sent, he said, I'm praying for you, and I'm sending you this scripture, Ezekiel 37. And I have to admit that at the time, I went, oh, yeah, I know that one. It's the bones one. That's nice. And I honestly never read it. <laughs> I didn't really look at it. And then I got into church this morning, and that came up in worship, and I thought, oh, maybe that's a thing. Maybe I should look at that. So I read it during worship this morning, and I thought, I'm just going to kind of hold on to it. And... Um, and so I just felt a little nudge again. So I think I'm just meant to read it. And so I, I will allow you to put your own connections to what it is that Nate's just shared. But it may, I want to be willing to put it out there if it's something for you. So this is from the book of Ezekiel. It's chapter 37. Uh, it's titled The Valley of Dry Bones. I felt the powerful presence of the Lord. 
and his spirit took me and set me down in a valley where the ground was covered with bones. He led me all around the valley, and I could see that there were very many bones and that they were very dry. And he said to me, Mortal man, can these bones come back to life? I replied, Sovereign Lord, only you can answer that. And he said, Prophesy to the bones. Tell these dry bones to listen to the word of the Lord. Tell them that I, the Sovereign Lord, am saying to them, I am going to put breath back into you, and I'm going to bring you back to life. And I will give you sinews and muscle and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you, and I will bring you back to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I had been told. And while I was speaking, I heard a rattling noise, and the bones began to join together. And while I watched, the bones were covered with sinew and muscles and then with skin, but there was no breath in the bodies. So God said to me, mortal man, prophesy to the wind and tell the wind that the sovereign Lord commanded it to come from every direction and to breathe into these dead bodies and to bring them back to life. And so I prophesied as I had been told, and breath entered the bodies, and they came to life and stood up. And there were enough of them to form an army. God said to me, mortal man, the people of Israel are like these bones. They say that they are dried up without any hope and with no future. So prophesy to my people, Israel, and tell them, that I, the Lord God, am going to open their graves, and I am going to take them out, and I am going to bring them back to the land of Israel. And when I open the graves where our people are buried and I bring them out, then they will know that I am the Lord, and I will put my breath in them, and I will bring them back to life, and I will let them live in their own land. And then they will know that I am the Lord, and I have promised that I would do this, and I will, and I, the Lord, have spoken. So God, I want to lift up to you today anything that's in my heart and anything that's in the hearts of my brothers and sisters to do with their work, their vocation, their dreams, their lives, what we imagined for ourselves, and I want to ask you to please speak to all the places where we've given up hope, or where we thought things aren't possible, or we just feel dead. We just feel dead. We just feel worn out. I want to ask that you would remind us of the, the dreams of our youth, the promises that you've made to us, the th words that you spoke over us, the things that you told us that you, were called, us, that you called us to. So I ask, Lord, only you know. Only you know if these bones can live. But I want to hope, and I want to hope for my brothers and sisters. So I thank you for that encouraging word that I totally believe is from you, God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. 
So if anyone would like prayer, please um, make your make one of us aware. Come up to the front, or if you want to just be quiet, come to the front or rest. But um, please be blessed uh, today and enjoy the time visiting with others here before you go. Amen.